Well, last year at the Grammys, you might have seen this, maybe you've heard about this, but Chris Rock was the host of the Grammys last year, okay? Funny guy, comedian, not appropriate, don't watch his stuff, but he's a funny guy. He's been a comedian, he's been making, you know, a name for himself for a long time, and he's up there hosting the Grammys, and he's seemingly doing a good job, and he's doing what he's supposed to do by telling jokes about people in the crowd. Well, Chris Rock apparently told a joke about the wrong person because this person, Will Smith, gets a joke made at his wife, and he's in the front row, and Will Smith... Now, come up here real quick, Parker. I'm going to demonstrate for you what happened. No, don't. Sit down. Sit down. Don't do that. But Chris, or, uh, Will Smith walks up and just slaps Chris Rock across the face. Now, everyone there that was in the crowd was kind of thinking, did this... Is this part of the show? Did this just happen? What is going on? Was this real? Why does he get angry? What just happened? Right? Everyone kind of just, and even Chris Rock played it off really well. He's like, oh, yeah, and he played it like it was part of the show. But clearly it wasn't, right? And in fact, later in the show, Will Smith won an award for acting. And he gets up there, and he starts crying, and he's like, oh, you just get passionate and anger, and I'm just so sorry for the way that I let my emotions out. But who did he not apologize to? Chris Rock. Apologize to everybody else in the crowd for what he did and how they felt about him and how it made him look bad. But he didn't apologize to Chris Rock. Why am I telling you this? Because Christians, we sometimes have these weak apologies that look like our repentance, right? Weak apologies look how we repent. It's like this surface level layer of repentance without genuine, actual, real repentance for our sins. Might feel bad over your sin but you're not actually doing anything about the sin. You're not actually following through, and you're giving these weak apologies. That is your repentance. But Paul tells us how we need to look at our repentance, how we need to change our repentance. He tells us how to feel about our sin and what we need to do to respond to that. Many of you guys, a lot of you guys, you know the word repentance. I mean, if you're sitting in this church, you've probably heard this word before. It's a change of your mind. Yeah, well, it's more than that for sure, and we'll get into that. But many of you know this word, but you're not actually practicing it all that well. You're not actually doing it right. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at three verses, verses 9, 10, and 11. Turn with me in your Bibles. Let's look at our Bibles together. Get it out on your phones. Get it out if you have a physical Bible. I want all of us to look at the text that Paul tells us here as he writes to the church in Corinth. And as he's writing to the church in Corinth, you need a little bit of background before we even dive into this. In Corinth, we have, right, we have the 1 Corinthians, we have the 2 Corinthians, still to the same church. But here's the thing, 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And maybe you didn't know that, well, why, Roy, why do we only have two letters? Well, that's uh, because we lost the first, we lost the third, we don't have it anymore. We have the second, the fourth, we never had it to begin with. So, but we have, the first, we have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians. And in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing false teaching. Paul is addressing people, calling him out. He's not really apostle. He's, he's not really, don't listen to what he, this is all infiltrated the Corinthian church. But Paul, what he did was in the third letter he wrote to the church, it's referred to as the severe letter because he just came out and just backhand slapped the Corinthian church. He's like, oh, you, you got to change this, repent from this, what do you do, repent from this. And he caused grief within the church because it was such a powerful, impactful letter, and it caused massive repentance in the church. 
Because these false teachers were causing so much problems, Paul addressed it with a severe letter, and then 2 Corinthians comes and he's rejoicing. And that's what, where we find ourselves in chapter 7, where Paul is rejoicing. He's rejoicing not because they were grieved, but because they repented. And that's where it starts in verse 9. It says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So he wasn't, you know, he, he was rejoicing not because they were sad, but he was rejoicing because they were sad that produced a repentance, that produced genuine change and genuine turning from the sin that they were committing. It goes on. Worldly grief, oh, sorry, back up in verse 9. It says, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. And if you felt, so godly grief, we'll get into that in a little bit, but it's really just the grief that God sees is good. The sorrow of your sin that God says, yes, that pleases me. That type of sorrow is good. And we'll talk more about that. But he's saying, what does is, what is suffer no loss through us mean? Well, it's, it's, if you did feel a worldly grief, if you felt a grief that was just like, oh yeah, oh, I feel bad about my sin, and, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. Well, bad things can occur if that's the way that we respond to our sin. So if the Corinthians didn't respond the way that they did, they would have been infiltrated by the false teaching and all of this bad stuff would have come, come into the church. But it didn't because they felt a godly grief and they repented. Verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Right? That sorrow, that good, godly sorrow, produces a genuine repentance. Produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Well, Paul's talking to... The Corinthians, aren't these guys Christians? Well, yes, they are. But the point he's trying to make is that you have to continue in repentance, continue and continue and continue, not to earn your, your favor with God, not to earn status with God. You're justified if you've been forgiven in Christ. But it's to prove that your, your faith is genuine, right? As James tells us uh, throughout the book there. It goes on. Whereas worldly grief produces death, so, of course, if you have fake sorrow over your sin, you just surface-level sorrow over your sin, sadness over your sin that doesn't produce real repentance, well, that doesn't lead to salvation. That's not a saving faith that the person has. Verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So Paul starts this list of, hey, this is what real repentance looks like. This is how those Corinthians, how they responded to their sin, proved to me with all of these things that they did, proved to me, yep, they're, they're innocent. They're innocent. And he says this. He said, yeah, they had earnestness with their godly grief, and it, it was produced in them. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, that means hatred, right? Hatred of sin. What fear, fear of God and the punishment that could come. What longing to make it right. What zeal what punishment? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. These Corinthians, the Corinthian church, wanted to prove themselves true. They wanted to prove themselves, Paul, look, we're free of this sin. And we wanted to, they, they repented and they tried to turn away and they did. And Paul was praising that. Well, here's the big idea. You need to learn how to respond rightly to your sin and to turn from it in a way that pleases God. That's the big idea for our text today. And the way that we start applying this, it, it starts back in verses 9 and 10. We have to have a right heart about our sin. We have to feel the pain of our sin. You need to understand that your sin should cause sorrow in your life because of the weight of it. And that's the first point that we're going to look at. Feel sincere sorrow when you sin. That's point number one. Feel sincere sorrow when you sin. 
Write down James 4, 9 and 10. Don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. James 4, 9 and 10 gives us a good look at what, how we should feel. James is talking about this response to your sin. And James says this. He says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So when we sin, our laughter, we shouldn't be laughing when we're in sin. If we're in unrepentant sin or when we do something wrong, it shouldn't bring joy to us. It needs to bring mourning and weeping and sadness. It's that sorrow that we're talking about here. Well, you might be asking, Roy, I don't, have, I don't feel this sorrow. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, can you be a Christian and not have sorrow over your sins sometimes? Sure. That's what we're correcting here today. We want you to feel that every day. So you could feel that sorrow, but if you're not feeling that sorrow, potentially it's because you're calloused to your own sin. Potentially it's because you have not actually repented of your sin. And you continue in it, and you continue in it, and you're calloused by it. And if you continue in that sin, you're not going to feel that sorrow in your heart. You're not going to feel sadness over your sin if you're continuing in unrepentance. Perhaps you're calloused to your own sin and you need to repent of it. Perhaps you're stubborn. Some of you might be stubborn over your sin. I mean, sometimes that can happen, right? Sometimes we can be like, ah, you know, it's not that bad. Well, at least I'm not, you know, I'm not doing these crazy things that my, my friends at school are doing. You know, I'm just doing, I'm doing the morally right thing. So really, it's not a big deal. But to God, even the small things are a big deal. Because every sin is worthy of death. Every sin is worthy of condemnation. We can't make excuses for our sin. Perhaps you don't feel that sorrow because you could be taking Christ's sacrifice for granted. Jesus, Jesus forgives me. I'll, yeah, it's good. No, Jesus forgives me. Oh, I messed up again. Well, Christ forgives me. Sure. That's true, but that's taking Christ's sacrifice for granted. Seeing that I'm, I'm going to sin or at least feeling less about your sin because you know, oh, well, I'm forgiven. Might not be feeling sorrow of your sin because you're taking it for granted. Well, why is this important? Why is it important that I feel sorrow over my sin? Well, just as Paul says, even in verse 10, he says, if you don't feel that sorrow of your sin, then you will never produce true repentance. If you don't feel the weight of your sin, you will never truly repent. Because that genuine sorrow leads to that genuine repentance. And you can feel this sincere sorrow when you understand the gravity of your sin against God. Think about who God is. Think about his attributes. Think about his love and his grace, his mercy. Think about how big he is. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's everywhere all at one time. I mean, he created the world. He created everything in the world. Write down Isaiah 57.15. Isaiah 57.15. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess to you guys. Let me just preface this. Men cry, all right? So don't judge me. Don't judge me. I'm a man. I got a beard. Men cry. Well, this verse was the, the first and the only time that I've ever actually cried over a verse as I read it. And it's because you see the bigness of God, the, the transcendence of God, and you see the closeness of God to the, his creatures, the imminence of God. He's massive, but he cares for his people. Isaiah 57, 15. 
For thus says the one, capital O, God, who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This massive God who judges sin, who pours out his wrath upon sinners, yet is with his sinful people because they're forgiven in Christ if they are forgiven in Christ. He cares for those that he has. I mean, that verse is unreal. That should build sorrow for our sin. You begin to understand more clearly the gravity of your sin when you grow that knowledge of who God is and of what your sin is. Right? And there's so many ways that you guys can do that. There's so many ways you can grow in your knowledge of sin and grow in your knowledge of God. Right? We just, I talked about it just a few moments ago about learning about God's attributes. That's been so impactful in my Christian walk. Just learning about who God is humbles me more and more and more every single day. And it will humble you too if you take the time to study and grow and learn about who God is. And, you know, there's so many ways you can do that. Of course, you know, we're, we're preaching a Christian sermon. What, what would this be if I didn't say you got to read your Bible more? Right? Bible intake is going to teach you, okay, I'm a sinner. Like, if you're reading the DBR with us right now, you're reading through the Old Testament, and you're reading through Judges, we just read through Judges, you're going to look at Judges and be like, wow, we're sinners, aren't we? Wow, if God wasn't there to help us, we would just go to the wrong place more and more every single day. The relentless intake of God's word will help you feel that sorrow over your sin. Also prayer, right? Contemplative prayer. And I said it that way intentionally because you, it's not just praying every day and it's not just the monotonous work of praying, which is good, but it's having this, this, this slowing down and thinking, thoughtful prayer and asking God, reveal your sin, my sin to me. Help me to understand who I am and help me to understand who you are. It's a great prayer to pray. Thought-provoking books is one way that has really been impactful for me. And the way you can see that, uh, you know, grow in your understanding of sin and understanding who God is, is by reading these books. I mean, take time. Christians should be readers. They should. Because we want to know who God is, right? We want to study and grow in who God is. Holiness of God's a great book, challenging. Desiring God's great, knowledge of the holy. That's one that I recommend to everybody, knowledge of the holy, because it tells us a lot about who God is, his attributes. Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read that, are you sure you're a Christian? I don't think so. No, you, you can be, but I highly recommend Pilgrim's Progress. Awesome book. It's one of the few books I've read multiple times. It's a great, great book. Now, of course, this isn't a command of scripture to go read these books, but this is helpful application. It's like, hey, read these books and it will grow your sorrow over your sin. It will. Another powerful way you can begin to feel this sorrow, and, and I got to tell you, this is the most impactful, and I think should be the most impactful way to build sorrow of your sin, is remembering that your sin, my sin, placed Jesus on the cross. Placed Jesus on the cross. He died because of our sin. He was executed because of our sin. Take yourself back 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, you're in Jerusalem. I mean, we just had Easter. It was Passion Week, right? Good Friday. Take yourself back to Good Friday. And what happened on Good Friday? Well, Jesus went to trial. He was arrested. He went to trial. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was abused. He got the crown of thorns smashed on his head as he saw blood droplets coming down from his forehead. And he's being punched 
by the Roman guards. And who threw the punch? You and me. Why? Because we look at passages like Isaiah 53, 5. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him is the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Take it to the next scene. You go into where the flogging happens by the Roman guard and you have the whips and you have these whips that have shards of glass in them. And Jesus, after already being beaten and abused, he's getting smashed with these whips onto his body and bleeding more and maimed all over. And who threw the whip? You and me. Move on to the, to the final scene where Jesus is up on Golgotha and the, the, the hole that's dug for his cross is there prepared for him. And the cross that he took with his maimed and abused body is being brought to this location where he's going to be executed. And it's laid down on the ground and he's laid atop, on top of it. And the Roman guard takes a nail and he puts it into his left hand and he hammers it and hammers it and hammers it. Metal nail through his hand, through the right hand. And then through the feet. And he's hanging there on the cross by that. And who swung the hammer? You and me. Yeah, of course, the Roman guard did. But that happened because of your sin and because of my sin. It's crushed for iniquities. That should build sorrow over your sin. Because think about it. This should build sorrow for, for, sin, for anybody. I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever. An innocent man who lived a perfect life died for other people unjustified death. I mean, that would, that would make anyone feel bad. But it should make the Christian feel even worse about their sin. But I don't want to leave you there. There's hope, of course, right? We know what happens on Sunday. He's resurrected. And everyone who's a believer, who places their faith, their faith in Christ, who repents from their sin, they're saved. It takes a new light. And you think about, when you think about Jesus, who's going up on the cross and he's being tortured and executed for our sin, who does he have in mind? The people that would be saved. The sins that you and I have committed. He has that in his mind. He knowingly goes to the cross for love for his people. He knowingly takes the lashes, he takes the punishment, and he takes the crucifixion for sinners like you and me. Romans 5.8 tells us that. That should cause us to feel even more sorrow for our sin. It's not like he didn't know what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He's fully God. That should increase our sorrow. That love that he has for his people, that he would be willingly executed on the cross. Tell the gospel to yourself every single day. Think about that. Just tell your God, remind yourself of this story every single day. And the next time you sin, I guarantee you, you're going to feel that weight of the sin that you've committed. Let's look back at verse 10. When we look at verse 10, we see the difference between what godly grief and worldly grief is. And Paul tries to make that clear for us. Godly grief is this real grief that leads to repentance, whereas worldly grief leads to death. What's the difference? Just to shift the, uh, the feel of the room here, I, Micah, my son, he uh, is very young. He's 18 months old. And he loves watching me do dishes. But sometimes he wants to join. Right? Sometimes he wants to do the dishes with me. 
I don't like when he wants to do the dishes with me. I like it when he just plays in the kitchen and does his thing. Well, Micah doesn't know that I like that. So when I'm doing the dishes, uh, Micah reaches for something in the, in the dishwasher. I say, no, don't do that. He's like, oh, all right, sometimes. Go back to do the, dish, the dishes. I put the next one in, and what is Micah holding in his hand? A knife pointing upwards. I'm like, that's, I mean, that's why we don't do this, right? But no, I mean, he, he's got the knife pointing upwards, and I'm like, Micah, no, I take it, and I put it, you know, put it back in the thing, and he starts, of course, what does he do? He starts crying. You took the thing. But Micah's not crying because he disobeyed me. Micah's not crying because, oh, Dad didn't want me to do that. Micah's crying because I took the toy from him, the thing that's going to poke his eye out, right? I know better. He took the thing, I took the thing from him. That's why he's whining. That's why Mike is crying. That's why he's sad. Now, this is kind of this feeling between what worldly grief and godly grief looks like, where you feel sorry for sin, but you don't actually do anything about it. You don't, you don't care uh, that you've offended God. You care that you got caught, or you care that, that the, the, the thing that you wanted got taken away from you. It's the idea between worldly grief and godly grief. And that feeling of, oh, I disobeyed God would lead Micah, if he knew better, to be like, oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, Dad. I won't do that anymore. In fact, I'll stay outside of the, the kitchen. I wish he could talk like that. That would be amazing. But he doesn't. He says four words, which is also adorable. We see this in Scripture between Judas and Peter, right? You think about Judas in Matthew 27, what did he do after he got, you know, Jesus was betrayed, and then after Jesus died, what did he do? He threw the coins back to the Pharisees. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a part of this, and then felt sorrow. You know, he still felt guilty, right? He still felt sorrow. But did it lead to Judas's repentance? No. He went and took his own life. But whereas Peter, who denied Christ three times, he went and, and did do something about it. He felt that grief over his sin. He felt bad about it. But then what did he do? He went on to follow what God told him to do. He started preaching great sermons. He started building the church. He started being a leader in the church. So we see this difference in response to sin between Judas and between Peter. We see a a worldly grief and we see a godly grief. What does worldly grief look like in your life? Well, it looks like you caring more about getting caught than offending God. Right? You get caught lying to a friend. You don't care that you, know, you lied to you. You're just sad that you can't lie to your friend anymore because they think you're a liar. Or maybe you cheated on an exam at school. Right, Finals are around the corner for you guys. Sorry to bring that up in a sermon on Sunday morning, but finals are coming up for you guys pretty soon. You get caught cheating on exam. Right? You're just sad you got caught and the teacher's mad or maybe you got you know, consequences that come from it, but you're not, offended, or you're not sad that you don't feel sorry because God says, hey, you need to be an honest and integral person. Worldly grief leads to selfishness. You feel bad about what you did, but there's nothing that you do afterwards. There's no follow-up. There's no follow-through. Okay, so what does godly grief look like in your life? looks like repentance. Godly grief looks like actually doing something with that sin, actually responding and getting right with who God, what God says is right. And we'll talk more about that in the second point, but godly grief leads to genuine, heartfelt change in your life. Look at Psalm 51 with me. 
Everyone turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, while you're turning there, I'll remind you that Psalm 51 was written by David after he committed the sin with Bathsheba. And if you don't know the story, long story short, he committed sexual morality with a woman that wasn't his wife, and it was, a, uh, it was bad, right? It was a sin. It was sinful, and he felt terrible about it. He felt godly grief. And then he writes this psalm of sorrow. You look, I mean, just hear the words that, that David uses in this psalm, Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my, my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. When's the last time you wrote a journal entry like that? When's the last time you typed that out on your computer as a response to your sin? Probably not any of us. I mean, this is heartfelt sorrow. And, and let me just break it down. I mean, you go to verse 1 and 2, you see this contrite confession of his sins, right? He starts with confessing what he did wrong. And then he goes on to say in verse 3 and 4, I agree that I'm a sinner and I did wrong. God, what do I need to do? Let me, make me clean, make me pure. And he says that in verse 7 through 12. He says I, he desires to be pure before God. He desires to be made right before God. And then in verse 13 through 17, we didn't read it, but he has this willingness to make it right. Action, repentance, genuine follow-up because of his sin. David felt genuine sorrow, sincere, real sorrow over his sin that led to true repentance. Back in our text, in verse 11, as I said, Paul gives us this list of how the Corinthians responded to the false teaching in the church and how they sinned against Paul. They turned their back on him. And he, see, and he sees this as evidence, as proof of their genuine repentance. And Paul is describing that, hey, look, this could be a model for you and me on how to repent. That's point number two. Start genuinely repenting when you sin. Start genuinely repenting when you sin. Genuine repentance. And I said it earlier in the introduction. I said, repentance is changing your, your mind, right? But it's more than that. Sometimes we hear that. It's changing your mind. Well, if genuine repentance was just changing your mind, changing your mind would be like, if I got lost, if I was using my maps, I was trying to find a restaurant with my wife, and, and I'm walking down the street with my maps, and my maps leads me to a dead end, and I realize, oh, I did some, I messed up. I did something wrong. And I just stopped. And I didn't do anything. 
Does that make sense? I'm walking down the street, I realize I'm in the wrong, and I stopped. Real repentance is realizing I'm in the wrong, I stopped, and then going the right way, doing the right thing, getting to the destination. Right? It's agreeing it's wrong and doing something about it. What does your repentance look like? How are you repenting of your sin? Are you being lazy in your repentance? Perhaps. You have no desire? Or maybe it's not no desire. Maybe it's because you just know this is a Christian obligation. I have to do this. I have to repent of my sin, so I'm just going I'm to do it. Right? That's, not, that's lazy repentance. That's not genuine repentance. Prayer of, oh, forgive me, God. I, just, I won't do it again. Thanks. Talk to you later. That's not real repentance. Maybe you complain when you do something wrong. You're not accepting the consequences of what you've done wrong. That's lazy repentance. Or perhaps you delay your repentance. I think some of us can be guilty of this. Delaying our repentance because you want to hold on to that sin just a little bit longer. I just want to go a little bit further with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I just want to go, I just want to lie to my friend one more time just to squeeze a little bit more out of him. And then God, oh, and then I'll repent. That's not real repentance. That's unrepentance. Or maybe you don't take any action, is what I've been saying this whole time. You're not taking any action with your repentance. You're not doing anything about it. You're committing the sin. You may feel sorry about it, but there's no follow-up action. There's nothing that you're doing with it. True repentance and false repentance kind of looks like this. You've been to a grocery store, maybe you've gone to just a crowded event or something like that, or maybe at school and you've bumped into somebody, right? You've hit elbows with them. And what do we all say? Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, my bad. <laughs> you, know, you know that little one-two thing that you do when you bump into someone. But do you actually, like, you really feel bad that you bumped into the person? I mean, maybe sometimes, right? Depending on how hard you hit them. But if you, like, nudged elbows, just, oh, my bad, and you keep walking, right? But... If you're out here on the patio, it's Thursday night, it's a wanna night, or we're out here on the patio after church right now, and someone's kid comes running behind you, and you're backing up because you're being fun with your friends, and you knock this kid over and he starts crying. Every single one of them, oh, are you okay? I'm so, oh, I'm sorry. And you see the parent, I, I'm so, I did not mean to do that. I'm so sorry. Oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I'm so sorry the kid's still crying, and you feel terrible, and your friends are making fun of you, laughing, like, ah, I can't believe you did that. And then you have to go to your friend's group, right? And you say, I, I did not mean to do that, no way. And they, now you're the, kid, you're the guy that runs over kids, <laughs> right? But now, neither of those things are sinful, right? Neither of those illustrations I just provided are sinful. However, you see that there's a response difference between the two. You see how one can illustrate not really repenting. One can illustrate like, oh, you feel bad, but like, whatever, not a big deal. While the other one, you're doing whatever you possibly can to make sure that you get that fixed, to make sure that you get that right with that kid that you hurt. And not even because of the severity of it. The point I'm just trying to make is just to illustrate there's two responses that we can have as Christians to our sin. Let's be the person that runs into the kid and wants to make it right. Quote that. (laughs) But why is this important? It's important because if you are not genuinely repenting, you're not repenting at all. Plain and simple. 
And there's consequences of that. There's, there's consequences of unrepentance, right? If, we, if we're not repenting genuinely, I mean, we would be separated from God for a period of time. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 9, it says, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That's to say, hey, if you don't repent of your sins, God may not answer your prayers. You know, all the married people in this room, husbands, we're told in 1 Peter 3 that, hey, if you don't treat your wife right, God's not going to listen to you. The idea is, hey, look, if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't repent properly, if you don't genuinely repent, you may be hindering prayers, answering uh, answered prayers from God. Another consequence, and there's many, but another consequence is maybe your faith just really isn't authentic. Maybe if you're not genuinely repenting, it's because you actually haven't become a Christian to begin with. I mean, 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says that. Our verse says that. It says, worldly grief produces death. That's not genuine repentance, which leads to death. All right, now that you understand what genuine repentance is, you need to know how to do it. And that's why you see those seven long points on your worksheet there. Apologize for that. Annie and I tried to do whatever we could to give you some more room, but sorry, not this Sunday. Seven points I'm going to get for you guys. And the seven points I'm pulling from is from verse 11, where Paul gives us these seven action steps. It's like these are what the Corinthians did to prove their, faith, or their repentance genuine, to prove their, uh, their repentance was right and good. So letter A, you can prove your repentance genuine by earnestly pursuing righteousness. Letter A, by earnestly pursuing righteousness. Plain and simple, guys. Stop doing the wrong thing that God doesn't like. Start doing the right thing that God likes. Stop doing the sin. Start doing the righteous thing. Very profound here on Sunday morning. But that's, the, that's one of the first steps of repentance. Is you have to recognize, oh, this is wrong. I'm going to stop doing it. What do I need to do to do the right thing? Create a game plan, right? Look at the scriptures. See, okay, if I'm an angry person, how do I stop being angry? Oh, I got to be self-controlled, right? If you're, if you're lying to people, okay, what do I got to do? I got to start telling the truth to people, right? And, you, and it's an earnest. It's not just I got to do that. It's like you're going for it. It's earnest. It's like, okay, what do I need to do to make this right? What do I need to do to start doing the right thing? Make a game plan. Do whatever you possibly can to get rid of the sin. What are you going to do? Think about that. What are you going to do? Letter B. Genuine repentance looks like you're trying to eagerly clear your name. Letter B, by eagerly clearing your name. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're known as the person who gossips, if you're known as the person in your friend group that says the crude jokes, well, genuine repentance looks like you're trying to clear yourselves of that type of title. You want to make people know, like, oh, that's not me anymore. I'm not doing that. doesn't mean you have to go and tell all of your friends, I've stopped this sin that I'm struggling with. But if you've affected somebody with your sin, you want to make it known to them, i got to clear this. Hey, look, I, I know I lied to you that one time, but I'm no longer a liar. I've turned from that, and I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? You're trying to make yourself known as the person that is now walking in purity in that area of your life. A great way to do that is stop letting that sin linger in your life, right? You've got to turn from it. You've got to stop doing the thing. 
letter C, you got to feel righteous anger. And that's what Paul was talking about, is right, what indignation in verse 11. That's what indignation means, it's righteous anger. Indignation towards your sin. So you got to start hating your sin. Someone, let's just say there's someone that you hate. I hope not. Maybe someone you dislike. Let's, let's bring it down a level a little bit. Someone you dislike. I'm sure five people popped into your head. Someone you dislike. Well, if there's someone you dislike, do you associate yourself with that person? Do you want to hang out with them all the time? Do you want to be with them? All the, let, me talk, let me have all these conversations, right? Some, some food you don't like. Maybe you don't like sushi. You're wrong, but maybe you don't like sushi. Are you going to go eat sushi every day? Are you going to go hang out at the local sushi spot right outside the sushi restaurant? Oh, I just hate the smell of sushi, but I'm here. No, no, you don't. You stop pursuing the sin. You stop surrounding yourself with the sin. You do whatever you possibly can to get rid of that sin from your life. Why? Because you hate it. You have the a mind of God and you start hating that sin. That's what Paul is talking about here. Letter D Start genuinely repenting by fearing God. By fearing God. Start having a reverence of God. The first point where you're feeling sorry over your sin, the, the more you know about who God is, the more you're going to fear him. And fear him, we'll learn all about that at Revival this year, but fearing him is a good thing. You know, it sounds like, oh, I've got to hide from him. No, no, in Christ, we can embrace him. We can be in front of him. We can come to the throne because of Jesus. But fear is this reverence, this awe. You stand in awe of him because how big and amazing and awesome God is. And that's what that word is, awesome. You stand in awe of that thing. Well, a lot of times that looks like fearing the consequences of continued unrepentance. Right? We talked about a few consequences that can happen. Those few consequences, right? You can be separated from God. Your prayers can be hindered. The blessings that God may have bestowed upon you, he doesn't. Or he takes away the blessings he's given you because you're standing in unrepentance. You face trouble. You face trials in your life. You should fear the consequences that God can give you. Fear God. Letter E. Letter E and letter F go hand in hand, but I'm going to give you one at a time. Letter E. You can... Start genuinely repenting by longing to restore the broken relationship. By longing to restore the broken relationship. So longing is this earnest desire. You truly desire to make things right with the person you offended. Whether it be God directly, well, it's always God directly, as we learned in Psalm 51. We're always sinning against God when we sin, but a lot of times when we sin, it's, it's against God and someone else. Maybe it's your parents, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's someone at your school. Maybe it's a peer, right? Someone in the ministry. You're always, you know, you're offending God. You're offending that person. You long, you desire to make that relationship right, to restore that relationship. That takes action. That takes you doing something. And that's point F, by zealously making it right. So you long to, to restore the relationship. Just like the Corinthians, they long to make it right with Paul. And then they went and proved to Paul, I, I, Paul, what they do? Apologize. Sorry we messed up. Right? You long to make the relationship right, the broken relationship right. And that usually comes by f- apologizing, asking for forgiveness. Someone you hurt, someone that you offended, someone that you sinned against. 
You care about that person enough to want to make that relationship right. That's genuine repentance. It's a broken relationship that you want to restore. Right? Seek to respect and honor your parents when you sin against them. Make peace with a friend that you've gotten an argument with. Right? Maybe you guys got an argument recently. Go make amends with that. And do it zealously, Paul says. That's what genuine repentance is. Do whatever you can to make it right. Letter G in our last one, the seventh. Genuine repentance comes by accepting any consequence. Accepting any consequence. Well, of course, your sin, whether it's big or small, has consequences. Sometimes blaring us in the face. And we don't want to admit it. Right? Like maybe like we were talking about cheating on exam. Well, sometimes consequence of cheating on an exam is, is uh, expulsion, right? Or suspension from your school. But as a Christian, you cheat on your exam and you're afraid to tell your teacher. Maybe you didn't get caught, but you're like, I know this is wrong. I'm convicted. I need to tell my teacher I did this. Face the consequences. There's consequences that come. I mean, justice. That's what this word is saying is that you desire justice. And if you do something wrong, you're desiring justice. Well, hey, that means you're embracing the punishment. You're like, look, let's do it. Okay, I don't want it. Are you sure? I just don't want it. But okay, I'll do it. Here we go. You're embracing the consequences because you know that your sin deserves consequence. I mean, ultimately, that was paid on the cross. But a day-to-day consequence comes as a result of your sin. Don't try to hide it. Willingly take it. Accept the responsibility for your sin and own up to it. I hope you can see and understand the difference between this type of response and a godly response to your sin. How sometimes you tend to respond. How sometimes you tend to respond to your sin and repent of it. Surface level, or is it deep and passionate and you desire to make it right? These seven things, they can be used as guidelines, right? can be used as guidelines. I mean, it's not like, hey, look, this is what you have to do every time you sin. Like, oh, step-by-step process, let me have anxiety about it. But this should be in your mind, right? This, like, it's better for you to memorize this type of formula, this type of guidelines, so you know, okay, I, there's some things I need to do to get right with God. There's some things I need to do to get right with this person. There's things I need to do to, to prove my repentance is genuine. Turn from that lazy, relaxed type of repentance and start truly repenting right now. I was scrolling through Twitter earlier this week. I came across this quote from the great John MacArthur, pastor down in Santa Clarita. He's been pastoring for a long time. The guy's like 80-something years old, and he's still pastoring the church. And it was this great quote that I think really nailed, uh, hit hit the nail on the head with what I'm trying to get at with this sermon here. He says, repentance is heartfelt sorrow for one's sin. Heartfelt sorrow, followed by a wholehearted turning to God that necessarily produces new and obedient life is necessary for the Christian. My prayer today is that you can walk away from this with a renewed understanding of how to respond to your sin, how to truly repent from it in a way that pleases God. Let's pray about that. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing it is to remind us of how we need to feel about our sin. What a great reminder from Paul of how we need to respond in true, genuine repentance.
turning from the things that are wrong and turning towards you in righteousness. Please, God, convict all of us of any lingering sin in our lives that we can respond to it rightly in a way that pleases you, Father. I do want to lift up a praise and thank you to you for Jesus who died in our place. And that's, that's the, the core of the sorrow that we feel in our, our hearts over our sin is because of what he received on our behalf. Remind us that of that today. Help us to walk in true repentance this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.